This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with the creator and the co-host of the show, Mr. Tom Jokic. And what we do here is dig up great interviews from the archives and play the best parts for you. That's true. And Christopher, I know you loved our last episode. You said it was like Christmas Day and your birthday combined. Well, this episode (laughs) is like... New Year's Eve and Woodstock rolled into one, but with better bathroom facilities, okay? <laughs> it's yet okay. It's yet another fun episode as we continue our celebration of songwriting. Tom, as we said in the last episode, it all starts with a song. Somebody has to have an original idea and the patience and the skill required to develop that idea into something memorable and meaningful before any of the workings of the music business can kick into gear. You know, the star maker machinery behind the popular song that Joni Mitchell referred to in Free Man in Paris? Oh yeah, oh, okay, okay, we need to hear it. Stoke in the star maker machinery behind the popular song Oh, Joni Mitchell from 1974, Free Man in Paris. Thank you for referencing that song. I love that song. <laughs> When you think about the overview of the business, we need artists and musicians, managers, agents, and label executives. But first of all, we need a song that makes their work necessary. Mm -hmm. And the song is unique in that it's the first step in the process and the last one as well. The part where it finds its way into the ears, the feet, and the hearts of the music fan. So... Who are these magicians who conjure up these lyrical and melodic creations that we love? (laughs) Is this sounding a little self-serving at this point? I have noticed this. (laughs) Well, all right. I'm just going to plow on, though, okay? Oftentimes, it's the artist whose voice is performing the song, but sometimes it's this nameless worker bee in the musical hive who creates the songs we know and remember and mark our lives by. Today's episode will focus on the artists whose songs make us dance and cry and fall in love. George Michael, Janet Jackson, Taylor Swift, Alanis Morissette, Carol King, Sarah McLachlan, Billy Joel. Oops, I'll have to fix that. <clears throat> Sarah McLachlan and more. <laughs> wow, not a big Billy fan. Okay. Plus, we have the very famous and very excellent interview, Christopher, that you did with Neil Finn, in which he's literally ah. strumming a guitar and explaining how he creates, even if the lyrics involve a very unfortunate house pet. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've ever seen that in an interview where somebody goes, you want to know how I write songs? Well, hang on a sec. And picks up the guitar and starts writing. Yeah, it's amazing. It's a great yeah. moment. Anyway, let's get started with Elton John. From 1973, that's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, lyrics by Bernie Toppin, music by Elton John. And you know, Elton will forever be thought of as part of one of the great songwriting partnerships with Bernie Toppin. Here, Elton talks about his need for a lyricist and the desire to have a couple of cheerful ones. No, I just knew I would never make it as a a lyricist. I I used to have melodies flying around, but not lyrics. Um, So I'd never wanted to write lyrics anyway. I've always just wanted to write melodies. I've got to the point now where I'd like to write some lyrics, but uh, that may be in the future. But at that particular time, when I first started out as a songwriter, I wanted. it's always nice to work as a team anyway, I think, because we only write twice a year, so it doesn't seem as if we're around all the time trying to churn out melodies and lyrics. It's sort of in two bursts. It's like having sex twice a year, really. Uh, <laughs> we meet for a couple of albums, and 
and he writes a set of lyrics and usually writes uh, and we talk about what sort of lyrics we want especially the Captain Fantastic album which obviously was a concept album it's changed obviously our relationship because I don't see as much as him as uh, I would like to or, or as and because I'm always on the road and he's always got doing something and uh, but I think uh, his lyrics have become very depressing um, <laughs> I mean, they're always happy on the yellow brick road every, there's only one happy song on the album that's harmony and on the new album that we've just done some of the lyrics are enough to send uh, happy people staggering for their aspirins everywhere but I quite like singing those sort of songs um, his lyrics I think have got more and more depressing I don't know why uh, perhaps that's the side of his life that's coming out that he's expressing in his lyrics, obviously, but uh, they've become more... Um, I keep on the fact that they were so depressing on this album that uh, I had to say to him, uh, Burn, uh, how about writing a couple of uh, uh, cheerful ones? <laughs> oh, that's funny. Even Elton doesn't know what some of the songs are about. Great stuff. <laughs> All right, let's go to 1984. George Michael with Wham! and Careless Whisper, a song that he wrote when he was just 18 years old. By the way, that song was a source of uh, some disagreement and discussion with my friend Stephen Stone, who maintained that the line, guilty feet have got no rhythm, was a sign of lyric genius, while I wilted in the corner. I have to say, though, I've started to come around to his point of view, so... (laughs) QED, here we are talking about it all these years later, right? So it must have had an impact. Exactly. Anyway, George Michael became a pop phenomenon first as one half of Wham! with Andrew Ridgely, and then as a solo artist with massive record sales. But you know what? Sometimes forgotten, he was also a fine craftsman of unforgettable songs. Here he talks about making personal music and keeping your integrity. If you listen to um, my work over the years, most of it has been very personal. I just think in terms of uh, getting closer to the truth, you know, that's what you hopefully do as a writer as you get older. And I think because people know more about my private life and my sexuality, um, I think it's just easier to see how honest the, the lyrics are, you know. People know more about me than they used to, so they can attach these lyrics to, to very... Um, very particular issues, I suppose. If you could think of being an artist now at 16, Mm -hmm. what advice would you give to that young budding musician about the art of creating music and the business of music now that you've had this wealth of experience in both? I think I'd have one one major um, piece of advice for anybody who really considers themselves an artist, and that is that, um, I mean... Myself, I wouldn't advise anybody to try and be famous in the mainstream these days because I think it's quite a dangerous thing to uh, want to achieve. The downsides are so massive. But for someone who wants a career of any real distinction, um, I think it's very important to remember that the only security you can really have in this industry is your craft, is in your craft. And that as long as you make... Um, if as long as you keep your musical integrity and you never make decisions on the basis of money, you make those decisions on the basis of how good a record you think you can produce and even how good a video you think you can make, as long as you can make your artistic statement and be proud of it, then the fame will be worth something. So I think people who are kind of like me that, that want to be artists but are also desperate to be famous, which is what I wanted to be... Um, just should try and keep a hold on that because the the fame these days is is not terribly rewarding whereas um the craft and the art of making music will always feed them you know 
That's George Michael not only talking about songwriting, but also fame and how the craft of creating music is its own reward. He was a very gifted and musical artist, no question about it. So to hear much more of that interview, one of the best from our archives, check out episode 404 of Famous Lost Words. I knew you, leaving like a father. That is a great song from 2020, Cardigan by Taylor Swift. Tom Taylor is one of the most successful artists on the planet, and her success is due to a unique combination of her singing, her songwriting, and this amazing ability to speak directly to her legions of fans through her music and through social media. She utilizes an uncanny ability to write for her own voice as well, drawing on her personal experiences to connect with her followers. In this unfortunately short interview clip, she reveals a keen understanding of how she makes those connections. For me, it's about it's about sitting in a room and saying what you need to say to someone who inspired you, taught you something, someone you were in a relationship with. And, um, you know, when I'm writing songs, I write songs with very specific detail, like dates and times, locations, facial expressions, names, and that's all to paint a, a vivid picture and to tell a very clear, accurate story with specifics because your relationships, your memories, they're all made up of specifics. And so that's what my songs are made up of. And so what's it like for you to approach something that way and have millions of people that you, you've never met before in your life apply your personal stories to their own lives? I think it's wonderful when that happens. And I think, you know, when I first started writing songs and putting them on albums, when I was getting ready to put out my first album, I had such a huge fear that no one would be able to relate to my music because it's really personal. It's it's about people in my life who have names and, and all these details about them in the songs. And by, by pleasant surprise, I... I found that um, the fans could relate to the songs even more because they were personal. And that's been a wonderful discovery. I'd just like to point out that that clip was from 2010, when Taylor Swift was just barely out of her teens. Such insight at such a young age. And as you say, Christopher, she has continued her incredible streak of inspired songwriting in the years since. And by the way, you can hear more of that Taylor Swift interview in episode 104. Let's continue with our special on songwriting. King from 1971 and It's Too Late. You know, did anyone in the business ever transform themselves as much as Carol King did? From a teenage songwriting mom working in a cubicle in the Brill Building in the early 60s to a superstar in her own right in the early 70s recording Tapestry in 1971, which would for a time be the biggest selling album ever. And hugely influential. I mean, I, I think really an entire sort of songwriter movement was almost birthed through that record. Yeah. I mean, of course, there were other people that, as we're going to talk about, mm -hmm. were simultaneously working on their, you know, their early work, but boy. And that was recorded, by the way, in five three-hour sessions in January of 71. Boy. And right down the hall, Joni Mitchell was working on Blue. Oh. <laughs> and in another room, Richard and Karen Carpenter were working on the album that would be their breakout. Boy. So 
There was something in the water that day. Uh (laughs) (laughs) So back to Carol. Here she is in the early 70s speculating as to why the singer-songwriter sound was flourishing. Somebody asked me a question the other day um, in the course of a discussion. We were in on an interview. And I flashed on a really nice way of, of, you know, saying what I feel. And we probably were going to get around to something like this. But curious to see what you think if you agree or feel that this is probably right, because it's a sociological reason, and I do try to think sometimes sociologically. Um, because the, there's this trend towards like organic food and organic uh, going back to the land, and I think singer-songwriters are organic, and maybe that's why this has happened. Yeah, that would agree with that. Good. <laughs> Well, that singer-songwriter era hung around for a number of years in the 70s and never really completely went away, inspiring a generation of future performers from Sean Colvin to Jewel to Taylor Swift, who, by the way, was named for James Taylor. This is a special edition of Famous Lost Words, part two of our special on songwriters. Still to come, Janet Jackson on how she deals with sudden inspiration and Pete Townsend on the device that made him a better writer. Okay, before we get to more songwriters, I'm going to spring something new on Christopher. Okay, Christopher, you know what? We have not even talked about this, and I'm going to try something out on you. What are you doing here, Tom Jokic? We haven't even talked about this. It's called Beatles or Stones, and it's very simple. I'm going to give you two options, Mm -hmm. and you're going to tell me which one you like the best. For example... If I say David Lee Roth or Gene Simmons, you have to choose which oh. one you like best. Okay, even though the, even though they're both repulsive choices. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Now the good news is is neither David Lee Roth nor Gene Simmons make an appearance in this, and it's not even a contest. But anyway, okay, I just want to know and just tell me like right off the bat who you like more. Okay, since the name of this is called Beatles or Stones, you have to choose Beatles or Stones. Oh, I can't choose. That depends what day it is. That's hardly fair. I mean, some days I just have to hear tumble and dice when I get up in the morning or life is not yes. complete. But then then there's Penny Lane. And then there's Strawberry Fields Forever. Mm-hmm. Oh, I could go on, but I won't. You still have to choose one, though. Oh, Beatles. Okay. I am not surprised that you eventually, uh, when it came right down to it, Beatles, and Beatles for me too, by the way, but I'm not playing. Okay. Bob Dylan or Paul Simon? Oh, Bob Dylan. Yeah. Although I love Paul Simon, and I just heard an amazing clip from him the other day that someone sent me. He's on the Dick Cavett show, and Cavett asks him about songwriting, and he describes how he wrote Bridge Over Troubled Waters. And he's kind of um, apologetic going, do we have time for this? It might take me a couple minutes. And Cavett goes, yeah, sure. And he proceeds to just dissect all the little pieces of of one of the greatest songs ever written. It's phenomenal. That's great. Okay, here's another very tough one. Joni Mitchell or Carole King? Joni. I would say that too, but you cannot deny Carole was almost like the originator for for that kind of songwriting, right? Uh, so great. Oh, I, I look upon their songwriting as being very different, though. I mean, I think Carole King is a wonderful songwriter. I mean, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow? Like, if, if you'd written only that, you could retire, as far as I'm concerned. Yes. But, but Joni Mitchell, to me, really did establish uh, an entirely unique approach to the craft of songwriting. That Just that highly right. per- personal way that she went about telling her stories is is still remarkable to this day. And she's a much underrated musician as well. Oh, she's a player, yeah. Okay, Van Halen or Journey? 
what? <laughs> mm. I'm sorry, did you say something? Come on, you have to pick one. Oh, God, Van Halen. <laughs> wow, you dislike Journey that much. Okay, Sergeant Pepper or Abbey Road? Hmm. Boy, that's interesting. I'm going to go with Sergeant Pepper. Classic. I think for me it would be Abbey Road. Okay, The Carpenters or Barry Manilow? <laughs> oh, the Carpenters. Come on, Karen. Yeah, great singer. Great singer. I just didn't like the material for the most part. Okay, Woodstock or Monterey Pop? Ooh. Well, Monterey Pop, I think. So mm -hmm. many great performances mm -hmm. just crammed into one that, that tiny amount of time. It's amazing. Right. And they got there first. Right, exactly right. Okay, John or Paul? <laughs> I'm going to go with John. Yeah. All right. Alanis or Pink? Oh, Alanis. A thousand uh, yeah, times over. I agree, too. Although I got to tell you, Pink, I've seen both in concert, and Pink is one of the best concerts I've ever seen. She is so good on every single level. Well, I've never I've never seen her, so I don't have the benefit of that perspective on it. But to me, Alanis as a songwriter just rules. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Ringo or Keith Moon? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I, I love them both for different reasons. That's not fair. Yeah. Uh, let's go with Keith Moon. I saw a show with The Who. Actually, I saw the last show that Keith Moon did with The Who at Maple Leaf Gardens oh. in Toronto. And by chance, I was sitting behind the stage. That's the only place we could get tickets. And I thought, oh, this is going to be a bad perspective on the show. It wasn't. I was literally right above Keith Moon's head and just watched him, you know, like this sort of general commanding his troops going out into the crowd i mean it was phenomenal i knew i actually thought you might take keith i would take ringo but there's it's almost a useless argument isn't it <laughs> totally but we're having it apparently yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay uh two more rumors or hotel california oh well, that's good that's really good i just buy a nose yeah. rumors I think I might have to choose that, too, even though I absolutely love Hotel California. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this one's going to be really tough for you because I know you like both of these bands very, very, very much. The Beach Boys or The Kinks? Oh, that is tough. I know. Wow. <laughs> well, I think I'm going to, by a nose, choose The Beach Boys just because of Brian Wilson's genius. I mean, he, he changed the settings on, on writing pop songs, I think. Oh, yeah. Guy was brilliant. Okay, so that's called Beatles or Stones, and in our next episode, Christopher will turn the tables and put me on the spot. Now, back to our epic tribute to songwriters on Famous Lost Words. There are times when I look above and beyond. There are times when I feel you smile upon me, I'll never forget my baby. That's Janet Jackson from 1997, and a very personal song for her called Together Again. We know about Janet Jackson, the singer and performer, but what about Janet, the songwriter? Here she tells Marilyn Dennis and Roger Ashby about one important part of her process. Well, it's easy for me. I've always written about my life experiences, and I know it's a vulnerable place to be in to do something such as that, but that's the only way I really know how to write. I, I kind of... I've always been kind of honest in that way, but I do keep things to myself, though, so I don't reveal everything that goes on in my life. Mm -hmm. Do you write all the time? In other words, like you could find yourself, you know, on tour and have a moment to yourself and write some things down. Mm -hmm. Is it a constant thing? Yeah, it just whatever when it it just pops in it's in my head when it does. Mm -hmm. I mean, it can happen in a dream. Mm -hmm. um, when I'm on the road on the bus, 
a melody will come to me or walking down a corridor a melody will come to me and I'll try to keep singing it until I can get to my recorder yeah rem- yeah so you have it on hand at all times yeah. as much as you can that's interesting I always wondered how people did that <laughs> I love the visual of Janet Jackson getting a melody or lyrics in her head and then running around the house trying to find her recorder or a piece of paper before <laughs> she forgets them and I could just see someone trying to talk to her and she's going no 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 and she's dr- drowning them out with her humming you know anyway that interview is from 2004 and coming up very soon that full Janet Jackson interview including why she prefers her brothers to her sisters I'm not kidding (laughs) growing up around people like Smokey Robinson and Sammy Davis Jr. and how a power failure helped her deal with the media frenzy after the infamous Super Bowl performance and it is one terrific interview how about a palate cleanser with The Who? (laughs) Yes please (laughs) out here in the fields That's Bob O'Reilly from 1972, The Who. Man, I love that song. That is so interesting. You know, he was one of the first, Pete Townsend and The Who, they were one of the first to embrace synthesizers and almost like tape loops in the music at a time when no one else was doing it and we didn't even really know what we were hearing. It's very, very progressive music. Yeah, Pete Townsend was a pioneer. Mm-hmm. Let's face it. He I mean he 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 did not know boundaries when it came to doing the work, and a lot of it was because, um, as, as he explains in this clip, he laid the groundwork for some of their greatest songs at home, and he talks about how the right gear can help you get there. We've always worked roughly the same way. Uh, my mentor, the early manager of the group, Kit Lambert bought me a tape recording system back in 64 and encouraged me to put my thoughts onto tape and to produce demo tapes, uh, you know, where I play three or four instruments in the Todd Rundgren tradition. And I've been doing that throughout those years. John works in exactly the same way when he writes a song. So we go in with a batch of demos and now like so many other musicians i've got a home studio and i've had a home studio for a long time with you know really quite sophisticated stuff so when i do a demo tape if the who reject it uh i've actually got a tape there which is in some cases good enough to be issued as a master if i ever wanted to put it out myself that's pete townsend on famous lost words as we celebrate songwriters you know sometimes the very act of recording all your little ideas on a tape deck or a notebook or a phone is the best way to literally collect your thoughts by the way i don't know if you remember this story christopher how kirk hammett of metallica once lost his iphone which contained ideas for hundreds of songs and it haunts him to this day because those were gone and he never recovered it I feel his pain. Yeah. Oh, I bet you do. And you know, you don't get those ideas back. That's right. It's not, I mean, some people give you, some people will say, oh, if it's really good, you'll remember it. No, because, because you're kind of in, I don't know, like a semi-conscious state when you're creating and you're not thinking about storing ideas. You're just thinking about getting it down as quick as you can. You know, like Keith Richards waking up in the middle of the night with the riff to satisfaction and then, you know, forgetting about it until he heard the tape back. That's right. Um, those song ideas are gone. So, Kirk Hammett, I feel your pain, buddy. Yeah, and you know, nowadays, Kirk backs up all of those ideas on the cloud, and he has to. 
This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, along with Tom Jokic, and this is our special on songwriting and all the things that you wanted to know about how those magnificent little gems that find a special place in your heart and in your head, how do they get created, why, what are the circumstances surrounding their creation, we're telling you all the secrets in this show. I love this. Let's go back now to 1969. No time. There's the song that changed the game for the guests who, from 1969, No Time, written by Randy Bachman and Burton Cummings. Burton always has an opinion, and we gotta love him for that. <laughs> That's right. No hesitation. He will tell you exactly what he thinks. And you know, he makes an interesting point here, and one that I think is often ignored, and that is that aging is good for a songwriter especially when you think that it's in a business where youth is cherished so much. Well, I'm a pretty spontaneous writer, basically, uh, but there is a lot of myself in the tunes. I find now, as I'm, as I'm a little older, I'm, I'm 29 now, and I find now that I have my own bank of experiences that I can draw from, and the, the songs are less hypothetical nowadays than they were in the beginning. A song like These Eyes or Laughing... Those things were love songs, but they were purely hypothetical. They're just making up the the lyrics. A song like "Stand Tall" is a very real song because it's because it's me. I've lived through a bad emotional experience, and so it, it they mean more to me now. I think they're more uh, introspective now than they ever used to be. And the songs like "Is It Really Right" and "Sugar Time Flashback Joys" and certain things from my albums have much more personal tone than the old things in the Guess Who, because, you know, the older you get, the more you live through, and if you if you are consciously trying to develop as a writer, you'll just fall into the pattern naturally of, in, of including your own experiences. So they, I think I'm a better writer now than I was 10 years ago, much better. From 1976, that's Burton Cummings and Stand Tall. And that clip of Burton talking was from our Burton Cummings interview in 1976. Lots more where that came from. You can hear Burton in episodes 118 and 119, as well as our special edition from last year, in which Burton and Randy, in new interviews, look back at the song American Woman 50 Years Later. That was one of our favorite episodes and one in which Burton takes a pretty good shot at me... <laughs> for wrong-headedly suggesting that the guests who belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But I still love you anyway, Burton. <laughs> what were you thinking, Tom Jokic? I know. Far be it for me. Mm. I, I should know better than to compliment Burton's legacy to Burton Cummings himself. <laughs> <laughs> this is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with my good friend Christopher Ward, the original Much VJ. And more importantly for this episode, an excellent songwriter. And we'll talk more about songwriting as this episode continues. Just want to let you know that in the coming weeks, we have a special 90s edition of this show, as well as the full version of that epic Janet Jackson interview you just heard a bit of. Also, coming up at the beginning of July, our Canada Day special featuring this nation's greatest artists talking about their music and their country. And of course, you can always take some time to get caught up with past episodes of the show wherever you listen to podcasts, including the iHeartRadio app. Back in a sec.
This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic as we celebrate some of the greatest songwriters ever. Thank you. Alanis Morissette from 1998 and Thank You, a much underrated song in her collection. I am so glad you played that one. I think that might be my favorite Alanis Morissette mm, song, mm-hmm. even though it's not on that massive first album. It's just an extraordinary song. It is a great tune, and it doesn't often come up in the even the top 10 Alanis Morissette songs, but I think it belongs up there. Yeah. Tom, with Jagged Little Pill, Alanis found a unique path to her listeners' hearts with stories that powerfully rang true. She talks here about the fuel for those great songs. There's a period of time where I was worried about my own peace of mind in the sense that I I didn't think there'd be much inspiration that would come from it. But what I've now realized is that passion in any form that it takes is something that inspires. So if I feel passionately excited about something, it inspires a painting or, you know, or, or a song. If I feel passionately angry or passionately anything, really, it inspires a song. I think it's when I feel a little dead that nothing comes. So, so it's passion, really, that inspires for me. And, and being in pain is a great catalyst for a, a self-defining time. And I feel like most of my songs are very defining, you know, very, very defining times while I'm writing them. So... If ever there's a confusion or, or an anger or a pain, that's a, that's a real rebirth for me, and, and a lot of songs come from that, no mm-hmm. question. That's Alanis Morissette from 2002 telling me about turning pain and passion into art. And you can hear much more of that interview with Alanis and I in episode 317. Let's keep going now with Lou Reed. A hustle here and a hustle there. New York City is the place where they said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. I said, hey, Joe, take a walk on the wild side. Walk on the wild side, 1972, Lou Reed. Oh, man, what a piece of music that was. Yeah. Huh? And and so, I mean, kind of unlike the body of his work, you know, from the Velvet Underground era. And and, and we have to say, you know, it's like we, we, we lump Lou Reed in with great songwriters, as, as we should. Mm. You know, he's one of those guys, he was so influential, but kind of never got got paid for it yes if you know what i mean in this clip lou reed is the singer who kind of has to get his song to be sincere about performing it let's have a listen to this i can give my lyrics a really good reading since i understand them which gives me an advantage over anybody else and within the context of my own little songs little plays with all the little characters in my little songs performing them i'm good but taken out of that context i don't think i'm very good yep there he is lou reed needs to be 100 percent sincere he wasn't gonna like sell you his songs by putting on a new character to perform it and he makes a great point who knows better what's going on inside those songs and who can put it across better than the guy who wrote it that's right excellent this is famous lost words we're talking about great songwriters and great songs Michael Stipe, R.E.M., Losing My Religion from 1991. Tom, here's Michael Stipe talking about the unique thing about Losing My Religion. Well, I never liked love songs. I think that they're really common, obviously. Mm-hmm. 95% of songs on pop, pop radio are, are about love. They're largely ineffective and poorly written. I never wanted to contribute to that, that waste stream of, yeah. of bad pop music. 
so we kind of avoided the subject um, a lot. What we wound up with, you know, was, was um, a lot of other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so what brought you around to this, you think? Well, mostly, I think, um, uh, I've said this so many times, I could say it without my mouth. We came dangerously close <laughs> with the last two records of, of being categorized as a political band, which is something that, not, not politics necessarily, but we never wanted to be pigeonholed into one thing, one category. And um, I decided lyrically that I didn't want to write um, topical songs about mm -hmm. the politics of the day. What I wound up writing, of course, were songs about personal politics, and, and um, a lot of them are from the first person singular, which makes it a lot more intense, I think. Um, Losing My Religion, for instance, is, is kind of an extension of the song World Leader Pretend, in my mind. It's written from the point of every man, or mm. my idea of every man slash woman. And, um, um, you know, it's probably my favorite song on the record. Oh, wow. It never occurred to me that R.E.M. didn't do love songs before Losing My Religion. And it's funny because I was thinking, well, what about The One I Love, that song? And that is not a love song. That's a, like an anti-love song. And it also never occurred to me that Losing My Religion was a love song. <laughs> well, yeah. And for me with R.E.M., it was years before I could understand the lyrics anyway. So, <laughs> Remember, didn't they have an album out called Murmur? Yeah. It should have just been the lyric sheet. <laughs> Like a Rolling Stone, Bob Dylan from 1965. Christopher, I know that you have a very strong connection to that song, and I'm not alone in considering it the greatest song ever. We have some Bob Dylan audio in our archives, and you can hear him in episode 206. But oddly enough, none of those clips are about songwriting, which is a real shame. But we can't do an episode about songwriting without talking about Bob. So tell me the <laughs> influence that he had on you. Well, I first of all, I think it's not unusual that um, the bit that we do have with Bob Dylan is not about songwriting because he doesn't talk about it very much. Right. That said, there are a couple of songs in his catalog, um, Tangled Up in Blue from Blood on the Tracks being one of them. And by the way, there's a, a reissue called More Blood, More Tracks, <laughs> which if you're interested in, if you, seriously, if you are interested in the making of those great songs from that era reveals so much about Bob Dylan's process. So people like me, of course, fascinated. Mm -hmm. um, but he does also talk about Like a Rolling Stone. And it's clear from what he says that that song changed his life and his approach to his work um, as much as it influenced all of us who were listening on the car radios. Mm -hmm. And I will never forget the first time I heard that song. It's one of those moments in time. I'm in my dad's car. The song comes on and I'm just like holy what <laughs> is that and i just it was like you know those moments you know in a film where the world disappears and the couple are dancing on the floor and there's only them yeah. <laughs> it was just me and bob <laughs> and i i just couldn't believe what i was hearing i couldn't believe you could say that in a song and you got to remember that like the number one song two weeks later was mrs brown you've got a lovely daughter mm -hmm. so <laughs> the idea of what was in like a Rolling Stone was just revolutionary. And, you know, I mean, Rolling Stone magazine has declared the top three songwriters of all time to be Lennon, McCartney, and Bob Dylan, right. with Bob at the top. And, you know, he just influenced so many people. 
um, and just stripped away so many of the pretensions about contemporary songwriting in the process. It changed things forever for me, and that's why I play the guitar for a living. As someone who's not a songwriter, but someone who appreciates music, to me, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was how you could portray like spite and anger and a vengeful spirit on a top 40 radio song, like on a pop <laughs> hit. Yeah, It was so weird, and it's like a bolt of lightning, but it's one that, that doesn't reveal all of nature's beauty. It also reveals the dark side of the world. It's like the clouds opening and revealing something brand new. Well said, sir. I am right with you. That's Hit Me With Your Best Shot, Pat Benatar from 1980. No, Christopher doesn't know Pat Benatar as far as I know. He knows the writer (laughs) of that song, Eddie Schwartz, an accomplished artist and songwriter, but he hit it out of the park when Pat Benatar covered that song. And Christopher, you know Eddie quite well, right? I do, and, and he's, a, he's a great friend and, and a fantastic songwriter. And if I remember the details right, and if we'll, we'll do a correction if we get it wrong, I think she heard the song playing through a wall at a music publisher's, and that's, that's how it got to her. Wow. So in this clip, Eddie deals with the idea of not repeating yourself. People think that I have these, uh, you know, like, cupboards full of hit me with your best shots and you know just sort of open it up and pick one and send it along i don't write songs like that i think if you if if you listen to the record to the album you'll know that that that's really only one kind of song that i I write and i'm not into imitating myself or other people you know i I don't believe that uh i don't believe that that i'd be making a valid contribution to sit there and write the same song ten times there are things that people could say about about my music about what i do that 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 would touch me one way or the other but some things people say, I, I, I feel they're so far off base that I just think they're a little funny. Oh, you can hear the pride in Eddie Schwartz's voice right there. He won't be pigeonholed into repeating himself by writing another Hit Me With Your Best Shot. I, I'd love to write another one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if he doesn't want to, I, I'm happy to volunteer for you. Should, but for you, it would be like writing another Black Velvet, right? So Yeah, no. Yeah. And people people want that. <laughs> what can you say? For sure. And these days, Eddie continues to advocate for songwriters in the industry. This is Famous Lost Words as we celebrate the craft of songwriting. I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic. Up next, Billy Joel gets cranky because someone calls him the P-word. Yep, he ain't a poet, <laughs> and he wants you to know it. <laughs> Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic, and we are talking songwriting. And before we hear from Billy Joel, how about a drink? A bottle of white, a bottle of red, perhaps a bottle of rosé instead. <laughs> there you go. Scenes from an Italian restaurant, 1977, Billy Joel from The Stranger. Very evocative, and boy, does it just paint a picture, doesn't it? Yeah, it sure does. Billy, in talking about his creative process, says it all starts with the music. Well, I usually write the music first, then I write the lyric. Like a lot of people read the lyrics on the album sheet as poetry, and they say, you know, well, you're a poet. I say, no, 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 wait a minute, I am not a poet. Um, As a matter of fact, I have a little, uh, I'm a little uncomfortable about putting lyrics on 
uh, on the album where people can read them without listening to the music because they're not supposed to be read as poetry. They're supposed to be read as song lyrics. The melody has a certain nuance of its own that the lyrics are tied into. So when people read lyrics just straight off without listening to the music, it's wrong. Yeah, I'm not a poet. I'm not a poet. I'm a songwriter. And you also sound a bit <laughs> cranky there, Billy. Christopher, you and I disagree a little bit about the relative place of Billy Joel in the pantheon <laughs> of artists. But boy, those albums from the 70s, of some of his songs, even from the 80s, are so well written, in my opinion, anyway. Ah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Let's go back to 1963. Do we have to? I was one. <laughs> <laughs> and I had zits. My Baby, The Ronettes, written by Ellie Greenwich. So, Tom, you'll recall um, I did an interview with the Bee Gees in New York City, and I was flowing down especially for that. But I had a little bit of extra time, so I contacted Ellie Greenwich's manager and said, any chance she would speak to me about songwriting? And was like, sure. And we, wow. we got to her apartment in New York, and she was so sweet and so generous with her time and so forthcoming with some of the greatest stories that I've ever been told. Absolutely. You know, Christopher, you sent me this interview just a few days ago, and I was losing my mind. I absolutely loved it. It's actually quite lengthy. It's about 45 minutes to an hour long. And I went for my walk, and I listened to the whole thing, and I was just enthralled probably nearly as much as you would have been by her talking about her career and when she was married to Jeff Barry and her experience writing with him and all the various little things that happened in the studio and beyond and it was just so good. Here's a clip from Ellie Greenwich talking about songwriting. My ex-husband and ex-partner at that time was Jeff Barry and we were signed to Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, great songwriters in their own right. We would go in every day and go to our little designated cubbyhole or office and write songs like really nine to five. That was our job. See, it was a job. People think, oh, songwriters is just like, and it is fun. And it's not your everyday kind of a job, but it is a job nevertheless. And you do have deadlines to meet and certain things that you have to do. Did you find that you wrote as well under pressure as you would have if you were just allowed to write when you wanted to? Not always, but some of the time, you know, writers never, I don't think, well, you're a writer yourself, you ought to know. When you write something and you, you have this idea, you really try to hone in on it and make it the best that it can be. And I don't know if you're ever 100% satisfied, but this is it. It can always be a little better. The chorus could be a little stronger. Is the bridge right? And I think when you are on a deadline, you tend to like say, this really is good and accept it a lot quicker than if you have, well, we have all year to finish the song. So I think under pressure sometimes, you're forced to hone in a little quicker and make decisions a little quicker. And very often, you'll rewrite that song 20 times and go back to the first or second thing you wrote and say, that really was it. That's Ellie Greenwich in conversation with Christopher Ward talking about something that every artist has to face. When is a song finished? Or perhaps more accurately, when is the song ready? For example, there were 91 different versions of Billie Jean by Michael Jackson, and Michael and Quincy Jones eventually agreed on Take Two. (laughs) Oh, I did not know that. That's a great story. Yeah, there you go. By the way, I only recently found out that Ella Greenwich was the co-writer of two of my favorite rock songs from the 60s, Do Wah Diddy by Man for Man and Hanky Panky by Tommy James and the Shondells. Now, she did not write those songs specifically for those artists. They became cover versions that she only found out about 
afterwards when she was told about them and made sure that her name was on the songwriting credits because they were missing originally and she saw to it that that injustice was fixed in a hurry. Well, she knew how to write specifically for people, having written the leader of the pack for the Shangri-Las. Yeah, what a great song. All right, let's keep going now as we honor songwriters. A house is a very, very, very fine house. Our house, 1970, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, written by Graham Nash. You know, Graham's been a songwriting success as a member of the Hollies, and then Crosby, Stills & Nash, as well as in his solo career. In this very short clip, he reveals one important key to his writing. See, I write in my head. I don't need to be into a room with a guitar to be writing. Most of my writing is from pure uh, physical experiences that happen to me, and those happen all the time, and I just log them in my head, you know, and bring them up later. Oh, I don't know about that. It doesn't seem wise, Graham, to rely on your memory for good ideas. Mm. And I can imagine that he's changed in the 45 years since he made that comment. Yeah. I'm sure at the age of 79, Graham Nash is probably taking a few notes when a song pops into his head. (laughs) I'm quite a bit younger than that, and I have to remind myself who my co-host is about every 15 minutes. So there. I'm Wolfman Jack. (laughs) And and you're Roger Ashby, right? <laughs> so we're, we're good. Oh, that was a deep cut, buddy. Well played. I think I'd rather be Roger than Wolfman anyway. <laughs> so I, I, the casting was all off on that. Um, it's ironic that, that Graham Nash, that would be sort of the one point that he makes about his writing. The, the old, um, if it's any good, I'll remember it mistake. Yeah. And that David Crosby, in the interview I did with him, talked about how Joni Mitchell taught him a couple of things, including primarily write it down you'll never remember (laughs) and didn't he have an album called if i could only remember my name or something yes he most certainly (laughs) did yeah that's great i'm weak in the meanings for you but i'll stand if you want me to from 2006 what a great song canadian serena rider and weak in the knees Boy, she's such a gifted singer and player. She's got it all going on, Serena. She talks about what happens when you put a song out into the world. I try and separate myself a little bit from the fact that um, that song doesn't belong to me. You know, it's, um, I don't think any art belongs to anybody. So I have to really kind of come from a place of just feeling um, blessed to have written that song, but that, you know, it's it's for everyone just as, as, as much as it was for me when I wrote it. You know, I feel like that song was for me when I wrote it, as soon as I had it down on paper, it was it was for, you know, more than just me. There she is, Serena Ryder, another artist who feels almost a spiritual connection to songwriting, and yet she doesn't feel the song belongs to her once she's written it. That's the classic Gimme Shelter from the Rolling Stones, co-written by Keith Richards and Mick Jagger. Since we're focusing on songwriting this week, I want to play a clip for you from my chat with Mick Jagger from 2001, when he told me about his love of songwriting. I mean, I love songwriting. It's like one of my favorite occupations out of all the things that I do. And I think it's because you don't need, you know, a lot of um, equipment. You don't need a lot of time even. You just... You just can create something that hadn't existed before out of thin air, and 
there you have something that people will enjoy if they like it. If you know, if it, if if it's a song that people hear, that they will enjoy it for for a long time, and it means a lot to people. A song, you know, sometimes that they that they, they can really relate to it, and that strikes a chord in them. So all this can come out of just a very small amount of you know effort and time, and you know, it's kind of it. To my mind, that's all a magical thing. You could tell that it's his source of joy. It's yes. like he does all of this other stuff, but boy, when you're just sitting there with a cup of coffee and a guitar, how great it is to have the freedom to do that. Yeah. Bizarrely, I feel like the Rolling Stones, well, Jagger and Richards, have been underappreciated as songwriters, if that's possible. Right. I think it's because the aura of the band is so huge that people haven't sat there and gone, you know, this song, this gem, Wild Horses, yeah. it's going to be around in, you know, a hundred years or whatever, and it's still going to move people. Yes. Um, for whatever reason, I don't think they get the respect as songwriters. You can hear more of my interview with Meg Jagger in episode number 102 of Famous Lost Words. Distant Sun, Crowded House from 1993. Great stuff, and one of our favorite people, especially one of yours, Christopher, with your interview with Neil Finn from 1989. And you must have been in your glory having him break down songwriting while strumming his guitar. It was a pretty great moment, yeah. It was on their tour bus before a show. Oh. And Neil is just one of the loveliest guys that you'll ever meet in the music business. I mean, I've told you about him before. Mm-hmm. And... Um, he also is just amazingly candid. Like, he'll just open up a process that a lot of other people are very secretive about. He'll just go, no, this is how I do it. It sounds stupid, but this is this is the way it works. And um, that's just the joy of, of, of being around somebody like that, that's that creative and that open, open about what they do. He told me about how he makes things sound kind of every day how he embraces the nonsense that just falls out when you're in the middle of writing a song and you don't want anybody else to listen in on, and finding the perfect phrase. And by the way, tea drinking is involved. It's just a matter of daydreaming, really. Eh? I'll be just doing this for a while, see? chords and melodies and letting them slip around a bit and then occasionally a, a phrase will drop in your brain and she with that particular one that was something I was generally said no phrase dropped in so it's not a regular example but uh, you'll get some phrase to hang it on usually after a while and, uh, and then I'll get a pad and p- piece of pad and paper in front of me and I'll drop the first few lines down and then if if I'm continuing to play if I haven't already rewarded myself with a cup of tea I'll uh just try and work out as many lyrics that feel right with the melody I've just made up as I can, even if they make absolutely no sense whatsoever, I just write them down, you know. And then later on you try and piece them together a bit and try and make sense of it. And then the last half of the process is actually finishing it at some later date, usually for me. I very rarely get a whole song at once. Some There is some that I do like that, but uh, usually the, half the lyrics need to be finished at some later date. And the hard part with that is you've got to put yourself in the same mental state of mind that you when you wrote it to get the kind of the words that sound right and have a ring to them, you know, have the... Because, you know, 90%, who knows what percentage, some percent, a large percentage of it is making the words sound right for starters, you know, 
There's no point in having a brilliantly um, conceptualised argument in a song or an idea in a song if, if it, the sound of the words is really ugly, like, you know, I looked into my filing cabinet and what did I find, you know? It just doesn't... You can't sing filing cabinet in a song. It doesn't work. Maybe uh, now that I've said that, I probably... It'll be in the next one for sure. That's why you have to let your defences down when you're writing with somebody else because you, you actually... You know, my wife walks in on me sometimes and I'm writing and I'm singing sort of, you know... Put the cat out you know, Back in the fridge Let's pretend We didn't see him You know, it's like, uh, I don't know I think it's half the time If you actually we have a tape going You start to, if you listen to it enough You actually start to like The ones that don't make any sense the most But, um you know, a song like Sister Madly was written like that. Right? Lines had made no, absolutely no sense at all. But I shifted a couple of them around and changed it so that as long as I feel I can go through the song and each line individually makes sense to me, then I'm quite happy. <laughs> great stuff. Absolutely great stuff from Neil Finn of Crowded House and Split Ends talking about finding the perfect phrase and the right chord progression to create a wonderful pop song. And he's so good at it. This is Famous Lost Words as we put the spotlight on songwriting. And at the end of this episode, I'm going to interview one of my favorite songwriters who has a new album out on May 28th. His name is Christopher Ward. His new album is fantastic, and I'm going to dig deep with these questions. This should be very revealing. Thank you, Tom. Okay, let's go back now to January of 1990. I've been trying to get down the heart of the matter, but my will gets weak. Don Henley, one of his greatest, from the heart, the heart of the matter. Don talks about having to dig deep to write songs, even if it means dealing with your dark side. Sometimes it's almost painful. Most of the time it's just a little bit scary. <laughs> but, you know, you have, to, you have to do that. You have to dig way down inside. It's good therapy for me, actually. I think it's kept me off the psychiatrist's couch for all these years. It's, it's my own form of venting. But you do have to, to go inside and you have to think about things that are not necessarily pleasant sometimes, and you have to get them out. And uh, that process can be agonizing, or if you know how to do it, I mean, I've gotten to the point where it's not so painful anymore. It's just uh, work that has to be done, and I, I don't wallow in it. But you have to have a certain amount of strength, inner strength, and self-confidence. You have to believe that your thoughts and feelings are experienced by other people. And you have to try to come up with ways of expressing that that people can relate to. Not necessarily in terms of the way you intended it. You know, people are always asking me, what, what does this song mean to you and what does that song mean? It doesn't really matter what it means to me. What matters is what it means to you. And these songs are simply a tool for people to get back in touch with those little voices inside themselves and to remind them of what they already know. You know, it is funny, but I've always wanted to know what songs are about. Just tell me, for God's sake. And it's always seemed like a cop-out when the songwriter yeah. say that a song means what the listener thinks it means. But, you know, I get that now. And it kind of speaks to life and the way we interpret the things that happen to us. Each of us will have a different interpretation of the same event. So while Don is thinking of one thing, 
we interpret that song to mean something completely different. I think another reason why songwriters respond that way, and maybe I've been guilty as charged here, is um, they don't want to close any doors for the listener, and they, they want to just just leave it so that the listener can feel a song and interpret it you know their own way. And I, I think that is part of the, the, the writing process. Yeah. This is Famous Lost Words as we celebrate songwriting. And this guy knows all about it. He is a master of the craft. Smokey Robinson talks about an interesting division between observing and experiencing something that you put into a song. I have written some songs from personal life experiences, I'm sure. You know, even um, perhaps some that I don't even consciously feel are. However, I just look at life as for what it is and uh, see what happens to other people. I know that experience, they say, is the greatest teacher, you know. However, I think that observing what happens to another person in a certain circumstance can make you get the feel of what's happening to them and make you not want to feel it yourself, you know, if you're looking. I just write about life, you know, and about things, and I think that uh, probably my inspiration comes from God. I believe in God very strongly, and I think that uh, this is His work for me, or my mission on this earth is to make music. And I don't know where they come from if they don't come from the source that I think they come from. So take a good look at my face, you'll see my smile looks out of place. From 1965, that's Smokey and the Miracles and Tracks of My Tears. Take a good look at my face. We're celebrating the greatest songwriters ever, and of course, Smokey definitely belongs there. Christopher, what did Bob Dylan say about Smokey Robinson? He called Smokey America's greatest living poet. Mm. Why not? <laughs> exactly. Why not? And to hear more about Smokey and his artistry, have a listen to our special Motown Tribute Edition from a few weeks ago. It's Smokey telling the story of almost every Motown song he ever had a hand in. And there are a few. Too many men have failed before. Christopher Bird from 1982, Don't Pay the Ferryman, by far his biggest hit, until The Lady in Red came along in 1986. He got a lot of heat over that song, didn't he? The Lady in Red? Yeah. Yeah, he did. You know, the funny thing is, is I know that song is like a wedding cliche, and trust me, I've DJed right. a lot of weddings, and it gets requested all the yeah. time. But it really is a beautiful song. Like right up there, in my opinion, you, I'm, I'm sure you're going to violently disagree with me, but right up there with <laughs> Wonderful Tonight by Eric Clapton, I, I no, think the song, song is just as good. Yeah, I think it's very good. And you know what? It's hard to write those kind of universal songs because the, yeah. once you set out on that path, your feeling is that it's all been done before. Yes. So you know sure. what? Here's to Krista Berg. He's a fantastic mm -hmm. songwriter. Yes. Uh, and he, he, he's, he's very analytical about the work, too, as you'll see in this clip. He talks about the marriage of music and lyrics, emphasis on lyrics, not poetry. I cannot, for the life of me, imagine myself as a poet. Is that right? No, because the marriage between words and music is such a subtle gift to be able to put a line to a melody. It's very hard to do that. And when you hit, when you get it right... It's got a completely different emotional response mm -hmm. than just the words on a page. I think I'd make a pretty lousy poet. I think poetry is also a very disciplined 
thing to get into. I know when I studied it in university, um, it looks simple, but it really is not simple. But you remain a big fan of poetry. Oh, and W.B. Various. Yeats and mm-hmm. Browning. Mm-hmm. just want to apologize for the quality of the clip. It's one of those that we copied from reel-to-reel to CD in the 90s, and you know what? The reel-to-reel would have held up better. Krista Berg talking about his songwriting, and a lot of people consider songwriting to be poetry, but he dispels that thought pretty quickly. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic as we celebrate some of the greatest songwriters ever. Thomas, 1977, right before your eyes, and that's about five years before America did that song. And listen, I like America, I like their version, but I do think that Ian Thomas's version of Right Before Your Eyes is a superior one. It's a beautiful song, it really is. And speaking of weddings, as we did earlier, he played that song at a friend's wedding oh, when I was there. that's great. Yeah, it was excellent. Ian's a really, he's a wonderful talent and a very, very funny guy. He is. Um, and he talks in this interview clip um, about having to choose your direction when you're making a record. Primarily as a writer, I generally write a lot of varieties of stuff just to keep me interested. And I think one of the problems I've had in the past is that uh, one album generally sounds like two or three different artists compositionally. And uh, when I did this album initially, it suffered from the same disease. (laughs) And I decided, uh, with a little prodding, of course, from the record company, that uh, we should try and and make uh, all the songs sound like they're coming from the same general direction. So I went back to the drawing boards, did some more writing, and now I think for the first time I've got an album where all ten songs make they sound like the same artist uh, compositionally as well as artistically. Very interesting outlook and perspective from Ian Thomas as we celebrate songwriters. In the arms of the angel fly away from here. That's Sarah McLaughlin from 1998 and Angel. Tom, this clip comes from around the time of the release of that song. Sarah talks about her therapeutic approach to songwriting. Well, I mean, definitely all my records have been sort of a, a process of, of tearing away the walls that are surrounding the, the core of me. <laughs> um, and, and it definitely does help to, to be by myself uh, because it's very easy for me to be distracted by things and you know, say, give me anything. Uh, oh, geez, i got to do laundry. I can't possibly write the song right now. <laughs> you know, anything for, to give me a distraction. Um, basically, because the big, a large process, a large part of the, the process of songwriting for me is therapy, is going to those places in myself that I, especially with this record, don't necessarily want to go because it's hard work to get through them. And that's the whole metaphor of surfacing. Um, you know, I can see myself on the edge of this huge black lake at night which is you know the, the it was the album at the beginning and i have a terrible fear of black water because it's the unknown it's immense and dark and scary and i forced myself to jump into it and, and swim around in it and uh and that is the songs process of writing the songs then i end up coming out on the other side and uh, i surface and i feel a hell of a lot better about myself because i did all that hard work that i really didn't want to do in the first place it's kind of like working out 
you know, you never want to go, but once you go and, and you work yourself, you feel great afterwards. That's Sarah McLaughlin on Famous Lost Words as we focus on songwriting. That does it for this week's special songwriters edition of Famous Lost Words. Okay, not so fast, mister. This is a songwriting special, and I want to grill one of my favorite songwriters ever, the only one I know personally, and that's you. So let's roll it. <laughs> Oh, man, the very first time I ever heard from Christopher Ward, 1978, <laughs> mm. and the hit Canadian single, Maybe Your Heart. I really like that song. I listened to it again the other day as we were preparing for this bit, because I'm so happy that you have new music coming out. This is so oh, exciting. Thank you. Thank you very much. By the way, that was produced by the great... Jack Richardson, and uh, that's one of the reasons that right. it still stands up. He is also known for his work with the Guess Who, but first, Christopher Ward, then the Guess Who. No, it was the other <laughs> way around. All right. So, Christopher, you have a new album out called Same River Twice, which comes out on May 28th. Tell us the story behind the making of the album. Tom, as you know, I've been sort of working life out on the guitar and in the notebook for about half a century now, but who's counting, right? <laughs> And for most of it, I've been writing songs for artists, famous and otherwise, including everybody from Diana Ross to Hilary Duff. Right. And, and to that end, when I'm working on my own, I usually bank ideas for future writing sessions, right? But at some point yeah. in the winter of um, 2019 and 2020, I started writing songs that felt more like personal statements, and I was really satisfied by finishing them on my own. And just so happened my friend and co-writer Aaron Chattervedi came to visit me with his family in California in 2019. And he said, so what are you up to musically? And I kind of surprised myself because I said, Aaron, I want to make an album of new songs. And I thought instead, I thought I was going to get the, oh, really? <clears throat> That's great, Chris. Yeah. Listen, uh, <laughs> we, we really got to hit it. We got to see uh, Hollywood Boulevard before we... Uh, Anyway, he said, no, that's fantastic. What can I do? Write, produce, play? I said, all of the above, please. And, <laughs> and so we decided to get together with Luke McMaster. Uh, if you remember the Canadian band McMaster and James, Luke is a fantastic yes. writer, producer, singer, all these things. So I came to Toronto in January of last year. We all got together, wrote some songs, and started to kind of focus on what a Christopher Ward record might actually sound like. We planned to be in the studio in the upcoming summer, and that was, of course, when COVID derailed so many plans. But then the studio reopened in August, and we were able to safely distance because we have baffles, we have ISO booths, and we were able to, to, to pull it off pretty well. The studio is a big space to work in. And um, you know, the musicians who had not been playing live, obviously, or working in the same space with people were so exhilarated to be with their colleagues um, in a big room and, and making live music. And man... I had the time of my life. And you know, it's like t like talking about the work itself. It's easier for me to talk about other people's work. I'm sure you can understand. Right. But if I had to describe what these songs were, they're kind of like miniatures, little moments in time that, res that reflect a, a set of feelings specific to the songwriter. And stylistically, I wanted to cover the gamut. I wanted to have like a party song, like the title track, to something more contemplative like the last song on the record. Now, f and finally, in terms of how I wanted to do this, just to keep things interesting, I wanted to do it kind of Motown or Muscle Shoals style where everybody learns the songs in the room at the same time and then we record them on the fly. So literally, oh. I would pull out acoustic guitar, run the song down a few times, 
And then once we had a, you know, a feel that we liked, we press record. And then once everybody was happy, we go on to the next and do it again. So we, we consciously avoided a lot of the modern conventions like stacking up parts, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the Mutt Lang approach, you know, where it's like if, <laughs> if one guitar part sounds good, imagine how 20 of the same part will sound, right? <laughs> and and that's, that's kind of, you know, I mean, how people make records, particularly with vocal parts as well. Everything is just stacked. And what happens for me is it loses its feeling a bit when you don't hear the distinct voices. That's excellent. And, you know, your voice, your, your vocals on this are earthy like it's interesting because <laughs> it's a good you know, way we just to describe heard, it well you know but you're a little bit older than you were when you recorded maybe your heart oh yeah and when you <laughs> you're a little bit older than you were when you wrote black velvet and we're going to talk about that song in a second fact we're going to hear that song in a sec but not the version that most people are familiar with so it was really great to hear you now with an earthier voice than the one that we heard in 1977 with Maybe Your Heart. It's very interesting. It's very good. It's a cool album. That's for sure. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean, singers' voices, you know, this they change just like everything else. And, yeah. and I mean, listen to how Joni yeah. Mitchell's vocals went from that beautiful sort of fluty soprano of, uh, you know, yeah. Marcy in her first album to, you know, where, where she landed towards the end of her career. And uh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's what happens. Mm -hmm. And so who's releasing this album? Well, in a funny little twist of fate, it's going to be on Warner Canada, which is the same label that signed me back in 1976 when we did Maybe Your Heart. That's great. Yeah. Okay, so let's go. Oh, man, this is the balancing act. This is, you know, <laughs> this is the song you're best known for, but you're best known for it because um, it was a massive hit for your partner at the time, Alana Miles, and we're talking about Black Velvet. So here's Christopher, Christopher Ward himself, doing his own song, Black Velvet. Let's have a listen to this. Black Velvet and that little boy smile Black Velvet and that slow southern style A new religion that'll bring you to your knees Black Velvet That's just great. Christopher Ward covering his own song, Black Velvet. I don't know if it's a cover if you're doing your own song, but that's a tricky act. Covering a song that's so iconic, even though you wrote it, but you do a great job. So what were the challenges for you? Because people know yeah. Alana's version so much, and when they hear a different person doing it, it doesn't occur to them that Alana didn't write it. It occurs to them that she did because she certainly sings it like she wrote it. And so what were the challenges for you taking on that iconic song yourself? Well, you're right. She kind of owns the song. I mean, her performance is just yeah. the, you know, the performance of a lifetime. And, and I, I wasn't trying yes. to compete with that. I mean, I couldn't. I'm not as a singer or just in, in any possible way. It's funny because I actually thought about, about not including it. And my, my friends are like, are you kidding? You're doing it. It was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I, I kind of got bossed around a little bit on that one from a couple of people. <laughs> I think, great. and I think I was That's a little great. bit intimidated by, you know, by Alana's take on it. But then I, I, I kind of went back to the feelings that I had when I very first wrote the song. And that is that I wanted it to be this really sort of um, sensual, very southern kind of song. Alana sings it more like a torch song, particularly when she opens it up in the chorus. 
And not only can I not sing like that, but I thought a very different interpretation was was in order. So that's that's kind of what I was trying to accomplish. Yeah, it took me a few seconds. So what happened is when you originally sent me the album, it was on a blank, essentially a blank CD. It just said Same River Twice on it. And I didn't know anything about it, and I did not know that you were going to be doing Black Velvet. So the song starts <laughs> up, and I don't recognize it, and I went wait a minute, he just sang Mississippi and I'm in the middle of a dry spell. I know this song, and I know that imagery, and I love it, and here's Christopher doing Black Velvet. It snuck up on me not knowing it was coming. It was a really nice experience hearing that from you. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Mississippi in the middle of a dry spell. Okay, so the first song is called Let the Wild Wind In. A very cool song. Let's have a listen. Well, we opened up our hearts Christopher Ward, my buddy with his brand new album, Song One, <laughs> Cut One, Side One, Let the Wild Win In from Same River Twice. Great song with some very cool imagery, and it captures, I think, that live band feel that you were looking for yeah. when you just played those songs through once or twice, they got the hang of it, and then everybody jump in and hang on for the ride. Well, and this is the first song that we recorded for the record, so it felt appropriate that it would be the first one on the finished album. And yeah, it was. Uh, yeah. It's funny because the musicians kind of admitted to me afterwards they were like a little nervous about the idea that they had never even heard the songs. We didn't even send them rough versions. And the talk about right. flying blind. Um, but I think what happens is you get people kind of right up on the edge of their seat, really having to pay attention and really having to, you know, zero in with the other musicians. And I, as you say, I think that that feeling comes across in this track. Okay, so let's listen to cut two now. Um, it's called Shatterproof. Here's Christopher Ward. Losing you is my one regret. I broke your heart and I won't forget. Deserve everything I get. Give me that blindfold and that cigarette. Christopher Ward with Shatterproof from his brand new album, Same River Twice. Okay, Christopher, I love that line. Losing you is my one regret. I broke your heart and I won't forget. I deserve everything I get. Give me that blindfold and that cigarette. I love that last part <laughs> of, that, uh, of that verse. It's so good because you can just... You can just hear this recrimination upon himself, and he deserves, you know, the metaphorical execution um, uh, for the pain that he's delivered. It's really good. I love those lyrics. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm proud of that one. That, that was one of those ones that was one of the easiest ones to write, because I can sometimes labor over the details, but that one kind of wrote itself. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. So that song clearly to me is about regret. This next song is really joyful. It's called Sway. Let's have a listen to a bit of that. I love it when we just sway And watch the evening shadows play Cause when you're swaying next to me That's as sweet as life can be. That is just a lovely song. To me, it's kind of the opposite 
of the previous song because instead of regret of a past romance, it kind of captures the joy of a happy romance that sounds like it's in the present day. So that's, it's so romantic. And it's one of those things where it's evocative. Like you can literally see two people uh, sitting on a swing. And not only does that, the fact that they're swinging together, you can interpret that literally, or you can interpret it in the sense that they're both in rhythm with each other. Like they're, that yeah. they're, they're on the same page, yeah. you know, in their relationship. I really like that one as well. Thank you. Okay, so finally, let's uh, tackle the title track. This is Same River Twice. You can't swim in the same river twice. It flows and it turns to ice. And you can't walk down the same road again. It's a different day and I'm a brand new Oh, Christopher, I just love that. I love that imagery and the feel of that song. That same river twice, Christopher Ward on Famous Lost Words. Well, okay, I stole the main image from Heraclitus, who's a uh, fourth, uh, 400 BC uh, Greek philosopher. So there's no there's no risk of plagiarism suits. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> he says you can't step in the same river twice because it is not the same river and you are not the same man. And uh, right, yeah. So that's it. It was a kind of a philosophical party song, if you know what I mean. Yeah, for sure. So all told, this must have been a really gratifying experience for you. Uh, one that is both exciting to do and probably a little nerve wracking. You know, as the song is now being heard by people for the first time. Even though these songs have been in your world for the better part of, you know, a year and a half, two years, right? Yes. Um, although a lot of them were written, you know, right towards the end before, because, you know, when there's nothing, there's nothing like a deadline to really get the juices flowing. So uh, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it was it was an exciting process. And, and, and I'm thank you. I'm very grateful to you for wanting to, to share it with uh, our listeners. All right. There you go. Same River Twice by Christopher Ward. Brand new album available on Warner Music. Don't forget to download it or buy it or do whatever you can because it is definitely worth the price of admission. Thanks very much, Christopher. Thank you, Tom. That does it for this week. Famous Lost Words is a production of iHeartRadio Canada. The executive producer is Sarah Cummings. Our show was written by Christopher and myself. The parts where you went, oh, cool, those were Christopher's parts, and the parts (laughs) that made you shake your head, those were mine. And the theme music was created by Christopher Ward and Rob Wells, which I love. I hear that theme music in my dreams. Oh, that may not be a good thing. (laughs) I apologize for that. (laughs) You know, you can get caught up on more than 85 past episodes on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate and review us and tell your friends. 